Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 83rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Ash Ashatosh, founder and CEO at Actifio. Ash is someone who fully embodies what it means to be a serial entrepreneur. In addition to Actifio, he also founded Serano Systems, as well as AppIQ, a data storage company that was acquired by HP in 2005. Actifio, his latest company, is the world's leading enterprise data-as-a-service platform. Powered by patented virtual data pipeline technology, Actifio frees data from traditional infrastructure to accelerate adoption of hybrid cloud, build higher-quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio is backed by some of the top venture capital firms in the industry, and in case you didn't know, the company is one of the unicorns in the Boston tech scene with a valuation of over $1 billion. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Ash's background growing up in India and migrating to the U.S., his early career in the tech industry, including his time at Storage Networks, an early cloud storage company, the details of Serono Systems and AppIQ, the first two companies that he founded, what he learned during the time he spent as a VC at Greylock, the aha moment behind Actifio, and all the details on the company, its technology, and the massive market opportunity, advice for founders raising early stage capital, his thoughts on sharing a company's valuation in the media after raising funding, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Today's episode is sponsored by Pluralsight. It is amazing what machine learning can do. With mounds of data being harvested every day, there's so much we can learn and create. Pluralsight, the technology learning platform, is using this data for the good of tech professionals everywhere. Their AI helps you see what level your tech skills are at and recommends opportunities to keep learning. And they're looking for ways to help make their algorithms even smarter. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, then you need to apply to work at Pluralsight. If you do want to work here, visit Pluralsight.com backslash VentureFizz to learn more. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ash. Ash, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. All right, so we've got a lot to talk about. Obviously, as a serial entrepreneur, you've done a lot in terms of uh, building companies and lots of other great things. So let's just dive right in. Uh, let's talk about your background. So, you know, where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Uh, I, I grew up in a town called Hyderabad in India. And um, as a kid, I was always an uh, uh, engineer at heart, surrounded by a family that was uh, full of engineers around me. So always the guy who broke a few things to see how it all worked and put it back together and found a few parts still missing. <laughs> um, so you know, just, just a curious kid, like most others. And then at what point did you uh, make it over to the United States and then obviously you were um, pursuing advanced studies at Penn State? Yeah, so I came here, I came to Penn State to do my master's. I had uh, a degree in electrical engineering. I had worked for a couple of years. Uh, one of the things I found in the, in the industry I was working in was a lot of movement from uh, what used to be solid-state electronics to more software-oriented stuff. So I ended up at Penn State, uh, did my master's there. That's how I ended up uh, coming into uh, Pennsylvania and, and the Nittany Lions group there. I actually attended my first Penn State football game last fall against Wisconsin. That's a, it's a fun yeah. place. <laughs> oh, it's massive. It's a, that football game is a, is a legion there. Yeah, no, passionate, passionate fan base. Definitely. Yep. 
Now, what were some of your first initial you know, jobs after graduating with your master's? So a company called Intergraph gave me an opportunity to work on um, one of the earliest days of uh, building systems, building operating systems. It was part of the research work I was doing at grad school. And I ended up uh, in Huntsville, Alabama as my very first job at this company <clears throat> that was building uh, open systems. You know, this is uh, 1990 now. Uh, building open systems, building very first versions of Unix. And so I had a chance to really into the early days of the standardization of open systems when things were just beginning to happen. And uh, frankly, if you remember, it might sound pretty long time ago, but uh, Windows wasn't there at that time. Mm. It was a couple of years later that Windows actually came along. So the, the origins of Linux and Windows, they were just beginning to happen. And I happened to be at the right time at the right place. Got it. And then eventually you started your first company. Is it, was it 1997? 97. So I worked at um, Intergraph for a couple of years, uh, began to get involved in the storage standardization, the birth of the you know, real storage industry. Then I went to work for a company called NCR, uh, which was beginning to get into the uh, storage business. They used to make printers before that, and they decided they wanted to get into this, this thing called storage and uh, had more opportunities to work there. In fact, when I was at at uh, uh, NCR somewhere in 94, we began to hear this company called EMC way out mm -hmm. in Boston. Got it. <laughs> that, was, that was beginning to compete against us. So this is really very, very early days. So 97, I had an opportunity to uh, get together with a few of my colleagues <clears throat> and the leverage expertise we had built around the early generation of storage technologies and go build a company uh, for the first time in uh, based out of Colorado Springs. And do you think like the entrepreneurial path was something you always kind of were thinking about? Like, was that something that was kind of like just instilled in your mindset or was it just purely the opportunity to go build something? I, I think I, I live by the, a simple rule of being always a learner, always mm -hmm. adding value. And um, I, I wouldn't say I went out and, and uh, became an entrepreneur because that was a big dream. It just happened to be, you know, in the process of learning, in the process of curiosity, in the process of trying to add value, you get together with a couple of people who say, hey, you know, what we're working on could actually be a separate company. Maybe we should think about doing something like that. And it was purely an accidental mm -hmm. entrepreneur story. And in Wichita, Kansas, you know, not the hotbed of uh, <laughs> right. entrepreneurship. But, you know, we had some great people. And that's where we got started. And uh, moved into uh, Colorado Springs, where my other colleagues were used to live. And what did you learn from that first entrepreneurial, uh, you know, effort and, you know, company you built? And what, you know, what was the end result? <laughs> I think the very first thing you learn is when you step off, you hand over that badge to your employer. There's an entire shield and the safety net that completely disappears. Mm -hmm. you're, you're standing on your own weight, on your own merit, and there is nothing <clears throat> other than yourself. Uh, 
that just uh, saves you from uh, you know what's going to happen next or build on what you, what's going to happen next and that's a very surreal feeling people don't uh, i think it, it's probably more commonplace now than 97 and certainly more commonplace in most other places than Wichita, Kansas. But that is probably the first time you realize, you know, for the first first few months, your value truly is what you can produce. Every day you have to come back and, and deliver new value so that you can actually build or survive. And while it is a big eye-opener, it is also exhilarating because that's what I thrive on. I thrive on I tell you. I thrive on getting up in the morning and saying, what can I do to make this day different than, than yesterday? Uh, but it does take some time to realize that. It takes a couple of days to realize there's nobody who's going to give you a paycheck just for showing up anymore. And, and so obviously you, you built a company that obviously had value and was acquired. Um, so, so was it at that point after the acquisition that you moved to the Boston area? Yeah. So 97, we started this company in 1999. This company was acquired. I was a CTO for that company. Uh, it was called Serrano Systems. Uh, a couple of my colleagues were the more business side used to run the company. And uh, a neighbor of mine had started a company called Storage Networks based out of Boston. And uh, I ended up working with him while the company was based in Boston. I was based in Colorado Springs. And then when they were deciding to go public, uh, we needed to move someone into Boston. And I decided to make that, take that opportunity and move to Boston. And uh, here I was, you know, right in the middle of 2000. In storage networks, if my memory is correct, like that is an early, like, cloud company, right? Like, isn't that what their business model was? Or am I totally thinking of something else? You're absolutely right. I mean, they would, <laughs> today they would have been called the cloud storage company and they would right. be called box.com or Dropbox. Exactly. And in those days they were called storage service provider because, you know, there was an entire, the entire ecosystem of managed service providers like Exodus at that time. Mm-hmm. So as more companies started building websites and going online, uh, you were focused on somebody hosting your application for you. Uh, a company called Exodus used to rule the market at that point, And we were complimentary to that market by providing storage as a service and a uh, very different market. So it's a precursor to what you would think of as cloud storage companies today. Man. So that I, I need, we need to do kind of like a, we love to do like historic deep dives on companies that were precursors to what are, you know, companies at scale today, um, you know, like all the CMGI back companies and all these different companies oh, yeah. in Boston that were just doing amazing things that, you know, were amazing at the time still. And, you know, maybe a little bit ahead of its time, but uh, really cool stuff to look back at and, and reflect. Well, I mean, if you, if you think about Alta Vista, right. long before <laughs> Yahoo or Google, right? And so, yeah. That was born out of DAC, right? Digital Equipment Corporation. Gave birth exactly. to uh, Alta Vista. Exactly. Oy, yeah, that's something that we'll have to uh, go into the archives and write some fun stories about that stuff. But um, now, how about so your next company, App IQ? So, what was the idea behind that, and um, you know, what was the experience like running a, you know your second company? So, two thousand uh, storage networks went public. Uh, the idea was uh, 
you know, all these companies needed enormous amount of storage. We were in the boom days. People were buying up storage everywhere between 97 through 2000. If you look at the uh, storage company stocks, they were through the roof. There was no shortage of uh, reasons to buy storage boxes. In 2001, I left storage networks and uh, saw another problem. And some of it was with the problem we saw inside storage networks itself was the, the problem that you had too many assets, storage assets that were on the floor with absolutely no visibility to what you had or worse, no visibility to how to control them at scale and uh, look at you know, who's using what. So 2001, we started FIQ, and it was about this new market called storage resource management. It was about better, first of all, finding out what you had, and how many of these storage systems did you have on the floor, or how many do you own, then look at you know, who's using it, what are they using it for, and then start controlling, and how do you allocate some. So this was about, you know, it, it kind of lines up with the sign of times, you know, beyond once a 2000 dot dot-com bubble burst. Companies had to retrench back heavily and realize that they have a lot of assets on their, on their floor that needed to be better utilized. And uh, we capitalized on that in 2001 through 2005. We pretty much dominated that market, the storage resource management market. And who are your investors in that company? Uh, Northbridge uh, out of uh, Boston here, Northbridge and Matrix Partners, yep. early investors. And then uh, we had a, a company called ATV. Mm-hmm. Uh, was actually, <clears throat> yep, who was uh, now the partner is at a, a firm called G20, Bob Howe. Mm-hmm. And then obviously that, you know, you were dominating the market. So that was uh, of interest to HP, which went on to acquire that company, right? That's right. 2005, uh, we got acquired by HP, we became part of HP's uh, storage group. Now, for almost three years, you were, you know, heading up that division for HP, right? Yeah, so I became part of the HP's uh, storage business. I went on to be what they call the chief technology slash CTO. Uh, managed that business uh, for about until 2008, at which point I took a break. Uh, decided I wanted to really take some time off, spent three months in India along with the family. And actually a pretty bizarre experience where you find yourself with uh, no job, no insurance, nobody sending you emails, nobody <laughs> worried about your response. And if you remember those days, you had Blackberry that would keep buzzing every time you got an email. Right. And the Blackberry that used to buzz constantly 24 by 7 just goes silent. That is weird. And, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's back to that uh, first experience in 97 where you feel like you're on the island by yourself and nobody really wants you anymore. <laughs> but uh, it was a good break for us. And then what led you to um, become a venture capitalist at Greylock? Uh, so I had an opportunity. Uh, I'd worked with uh, various folks at Greylock over my time. And uh, a gentleman named Bill Hellman, who was a partner there, uh, reached out to see if uh, this was a, an area of interest. And I had been on all kinds of, uh, all sides of the business. I was 
I was an engineer. I was a large company executive. Uh, I was a customer at a place like Storage Networks. So I was on this side of the table. And it was always fascinating to find new experiences, learn more about the other part of the business, which is being an investor. So I seized that opportunity, uh, spent a year at Greylock, learned a lot from some of the most successful investors in the industry out there. And to this day, in fact, from the inception to this day, they're probably one of the most, most successful uh, venture capital firms out there. So it was a phenomenal experience for me to go learn from uh, some of the best in the industry there. What do you think is the, like the, the top one or two things that you learned you know, from being on that side of the table? I think it's fascinating. You know, as an entrepreneur, as a technologist, as a buyer, uh, the, the financial implications, the financial KPIs, uh, how you view the business through an, uh, a view of uh, a lens of an investor is dramatically different. And, and what, what matters to them, uh, you know, you, you can read all about it, but nothing like experiencing it every day. And there are a couple of different things, you know, for an investor, you, you have a portfolio of companies and the way you think about your portfolio is very different than uh, as an entrepreneur, as an employee, where the only thing you care about is one company that is yours. Right. And so when you think about managing a portfolio versus managing one single company or one single group, there are very different set of KPIs used to or the performance indicators and metrics that you manage to. And that's a phenomenal learning experience because it, it allows me, you know, going back into the operational role at Rectifio to think through, you know, what does an engineer think? Because I was once an engineer. What does my investor think? Because I was an investor. What is my customer thing? Because I was a customer. So it's a, it's a very good way to empathize with the different uh, roles people have to play to really create a business and make it successful. So what, what, you know, let's talk about you know, your current company, Actifio. So what was the aha moment that led you to start this company? I think it was a very simple story. Again, once again, I'm, I'm curious. I learn. I talk to a lot of people. And uh, when you come to around... 2009 time frame, what became very clear was, uh, you know, once again, uh, people had forgotten the excesses of 2000. Uh, the boom came back up and then the, the grinding halt of 2008 showed up. But this time, way beyond just the, the tech industry, right? This, this was a broad-based uh, economic crisis that really put and a lot of people into some uh, very serious positions here. One thing coming off of HP's storage business, looking at the portfolio uh, inside Greylock and looking at what's happening in the emerging market where people were moving more towards companies like Facebook were moving away from you know, The value was moving more towards information and data and less uh, purely on infrastructure. For a long time, if you think about the Cisco's and the HP's and EMC's, they built the infrastructure that built the next generation of companies. And they were more data-driven, they were more information-driven, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or, or even you know, likes of Gmail. And so we saw an opportunity to, to really come back and address a big problem of having data 
as the new infrastructure, something that any but any organization could have anybody inside their their organization truly access it. And so uh, we saw this this is a pretty unique opportunity to come back and create an asset that an enterprise could actually leverage for everybody in the company. And uh, but it had to be explained in a very simple way. And the best way we could explain it was. Hey folks, a lot of people use a lot of data. Most of it is actually the same data used by different people. There's a lot of duplicate data all over the place. And uh, maybe there's an opportunity or copies of the data all over the place. Maybe there's an opportunity to create this new virtualization company, a data virtualization company that immediately shows you the benefit by reducing your cost. And remember, this is 2009, so cost was really important. Mm-hmm. So I could walk into an organization and say, do not buy storage for the next three years because you already have enough of it. Mm-hmm. But move your business faster because you have access to data faster than ever before. So this was a double whammy for a customer to come back and say, great, I don't have to buy all the storage that I'm supposed to be budgeting money for for the next three years. And two, I'm going to be like those digital companies, those companies that have built value on information and data. So that was a value proposition for Actifio. Because the, the, like this whole issue of copy data, right? Like it was, companies were spending an extraordinary amount of money just to store that data that was just replicated for different purposes or, um, you know, just making sure that, you know, the copies of data for, um, you know, if, if disaster recovery, right? Things like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we give a simple analogy. If you took a picture on your phone, you know, firstly, you had the original picture on the phone. Mm-hmm. But then it, it was also uploaded to the iCloud. Okay, there's a copy there. Right. Then you posted it up to your Facebook. There's a copy there. Then you also did it to the Instagram. There's a copy there. And then you passed it off to a bunch of friends who passed it off to a whole bunch of other friends. So that's exactly what happens in the enterprise. Right. There are various applications, whether it is disaster recovery or a developer wanting to fix a bug in a product that was released or somebody trying to run an analytic, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning tools. All of those tools require data. Just like all of your friends, all of your Facebooks, Instagram require this data called your picture. In this case, enterprises require you know, data. There's databases or their application data. And that was a manual, massively expensive process. Hundreds of people involved in this moving stuff around, making copies, using huge amount of compute, networking, storage. And we just lifted all that stuff one level up and said, hey, it's virtualized. It's instantly available. Everybody who wants a copy can get it immediately. And good news, it looks like it's your copy, but it doesn't consume any more space. So imagine if, that same picture that was on the phone, even though it showed up on Facebook and all the places, it was just having a little link to the original one. So it just saved yourself a ton of money. And the good news, when you updated that photo, everybody got an update, which is really important because you know you don't want to deal with outdated information. So that was the origins of the whole idea of copy data management. And I, I saw a presentation that you gave at, at one point in the earlier days of Actifio. And- the number was like 29 billion was spent on storage for copies of data. So that's just copies of data. So if you could save companies $29 billion on that alone, right? Never mind the other value that Actifio is adding is just uh, amazing. 
huge and then the problem has only gotten worse with with the emergence of cloud platforms mm-hmm. and now you have five new cloud at least five new cloud platforms and it's so easy to spin up servers now so easy to spin up applications now so i'm going to just make more copies in fact i just saw a latest report that is 48 billion now because wow. it just exploded <laughs> it's growing it's exploded right and so I think in general, you know, the, the appetite to consume data continues to grow. There's not a single decision I can make without data. Just like I was telling you as we, as we were on the call, I was sitting with a gentleman, my colleague here, drawing, he's drawing on the board all the analysis. We, we are almost, it's imperative. It's an imperative for us to use data as a basis for every decision. And uh, access to the data, access to real data, access fast, is the only way a company can survive. And we talk about how fast is the new big. You know, you just simply cannot survive if you cannot get access to you know, real factual data fast. And that's what we do. We make, we make complete data real time available almost instantly. And that's important. And, and most importantly, while doing that, we also cut costs. That's you know, it's, it's not for you know, additional expense anymore. And where is the product today? Like you talked a little bit about, you know, cloud computing. And so I imagine your product has had to evolve to, you know, uh, you know, compensate for all these other ways of how, you know, companies operate their infrastructure and data usage now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are, we are a classic case of a company that started out in the era before the cloud and are dominating in the, in the era off the cloud mm-hmm. and we couldn't have done that without making massive changes in the way we think about our product our go to market our marketing so we started out as a copy data management company today we are called the multi cloud copy data management company we started out selling an appliance and a software that you would actually go back and install today we have a saas offering that a customer could get started within less than an hour you know they until 2014, 100% of our, of our business used to be about protecting massive amounts of data and doing disaster recovery. Today, 52% of the business is around DevOps and analytics, and almost 20% of it is in the cloud. So massive changes as new platforms emerged. But the good part was it just expanded, as I talked about, you know, the sheer size of these cloud platforms allowed us to create even more valuable company because all of them require data. All of them. So if you go to a place like Amazon, you can rent a compute, a server, you can rent some storage, you can even rent some networking. You can rent everything. What you cannot rent is your data. Somebody has to get it up there, protect it, make sure it's secure, make sure it doesn't disappear, make sure nobody hacks into it. That's what we do. Now, what's the current scale of, of your business in terms of employees, customers? We have about uh, a little over 3,600 customers today, uh, pretty much in 38 countries. Uh, we have about 450 employees, um, relatively still a mid-sized startup, I would say. And uh, most, of the, most of our customers are, are global, global 5,000, know, largest of the enterprises in uh, financial services, healthcare, retail, manufacturing, energy industries. So classic case of a, of a Actifio customer looks simple. It's somebody with lots of data 
and and or people uh, companies with a lot of people who use data because that's what we're good at now you you've raised capital um you know you know you know, large rounds of capital at this point in the stage of your company from, you know, investors, not only East Coast, West Coast, but in, you know, other locations. So what advice would you give to founders, you know, when raising, you know, that early stage capital? Well, I mean, capital is yet another resource, just like you have uh, your technology, your employees, your partners, it it is a resource. And, And just like you do with employees, you you bring in the right number of people with right skills. Capital is no different, right? You bring in the right amount uh, from the right people, and uh, and right amount is always you know, the best formula I, I use is right amount is about two times more than what you think is the right amount, <laughs> uh, because you know by nature by nature entrepreneurs are optimistic. You know if you're not optimistic, you would never start a company. Mm-hmm. Right by by design. So if you're optimistic, you can imagine that there's an old old paper that, uh, uh, that somebody, uh, a legendary gentleman named Mark Leslie, has written. He says uh, it always takes longer and costs more, and uh, that's what happens in entrepreneurship. So the advice is, uh, you know, go raise twice the amount of money at least, and uh, assume it's going to take at least twice longer than you think it takes. And uh, just focus on one thing. You know, too often we get caught up in in my technology is cool or my competition is doing this. And I think we live by a very simple guideline. If we can get our customers to be delighted and repeat that over and over again, somehow everything starts to fall in place. And that's easier said. Of course, every business says, of course, I'm focused on customers. And not everybody lives by it. That is definitely true. Um, you know, there are companies with great technology that's not solving a problem that companies are willing to pay for. So you got to make sure that you're solving a pain point to hopefully build a company that can scale. Now, one of the, one of the things I always uh, appreciated about Actifio was when you announced funding, you know, there came a point in time where you were uh, sharing your company's valuation. So the most recent press release from Actifio in 2018 uh, you know, talked about raising $100 million at a $1.3 billion valuation. Now, you know, Boston's a very humble crowd, which is a trait that I admire. But sometimes I think uh, Boston doesn't do a good job really, you know, creating a, an excitement about, you know, these companies that are becoming pillars, yet flying under the radar that people really don't know the stage and scale that they're operating under. So, you know, what was the mindset there of uh, sharing your company's valuation in a press release? And do you think other entrepreneurs should be doing that? Well, I think in our case, uh, we were we were overvalued over a billion about a year before that. Right. So the obvious question, as we were trying to brief some of the the analysts, uh, it became very clear. The question always was, "Hey, what did this come in at?" And so we figured, you know, might as well just say here you go that's what it was at mm-hmm. and uh, and you're right about boston I mean, you got some phenomenal companies here right whether mm-hmm. it's uh, log me in or wayfair or hubspot or cyber arc and these are or even you know like rapid seven these are pillars and we we do have this tendency to do a very good job of 
putting our head down and getting stuff done. Uh, that's not the case with the companies in other regions, which seem to do a remarkable job of marketing themselves. Yeah, it's definitely a different different mindset. So I think uh, companies you know, should be doing it more. You know, obviously it's it's not. I guess it could be considered a little braggy, but I think it's good for just kind of you know showing excitement that this company is on the right track. Uh, you know, as we talked about companies in the Bay Area, as soon as they hit unicorn status, it is all over the place. Like every you know TechCrunch and everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know, some of it is a mindset. I think we would rather. I've said this before too. I would rather be a mule to my customer than a unicorn to my investor because yeah. uh, and that's a mentality I think we have in the Northeast, Boston, New England area. Uh, partly because we we probably like riding a steady ship that's going up rather than lots of uh, uh, ups and downs mm-hmm. uh, created out of our own you know, imagination. There's, there's really no need. And uh, it also creates, uh, in a lot of ways, what we do creates a, a very sustained and a steady path for building a long-term company. I mean, if you look at the turnover of this company, uh, we still have people who have been here well over eight years now. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the people, the turnover is tiny. And if I look at, uh, if you go to regions where there is a lot of hype, you will see an enormous amount of turnover because once you get in, you find out, okay, it's really not what we're saying outside. <laughs> we're just putting on a show here and somebody right. figures it out pretty fast. So I think, you know, in the long term, uh, it's the right way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do understand that uh, sometimes we go uh, to the extreme of being very modest. Yeah. Now, you were talking about, you know, uh, tenure of employees at Actifio. So h- how do you evaluate talent when you're, you know, hiring for your own company? I, I'm, I'm going to say uh, a lot of cliche stuff here, but it's absolutely what I believe. You know, the very first question I ask people uh, is, is, who are you? And it does catch a lot of people by surprise because they start relating to, well, I was a VP here. I did that there. I said, no, 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 not what you did, but who are you? What gets you excited in the morning? What makes you run to do whatever you want to do? Because I think in many ways, that's a culture we build is to find out that you have people who truly are passionate, are humble, are learning all the time and truly believe in, in a, in a service mentality, right? I'm here to serve my customer. I'm here to serve my employees. And of course, you have some domain expertise and skills that you develop over time. But the way you develop it, the way you deliver it, the culture becomes really at the foundation of everything for us. And that's exactly the reason why the turnover is pretty low, because in many ways, you find people who are in a similar attitude, similar culture, they, they thrive in that culture. They focus on what's really important for people that are depending on them. So at the heart of it, that's the number one thing. Now, you know, we also try to be very, uh, we talk about this, you know, in fact, just the uh, day before yesterday, we had a question about, as a new fiscal year began, you know, how do I deal with underperformers, especially in organizations that measure performance very quickly, like in sales. And um, now the discussion was pretty straightforward. And somebody brought that up very nicely. He said, look, it is 
it is absolutely important for us to to explain to the person who is not doing well that this is for their own benefit that they have to move on because they are not making money mm-hmm. they are not happy because they are usually they are very successful people but you have to it, it becomes your responsibility to take this as a as a a way to have a candid conversation with somebody about what is right for them because if they were not great they wouldn't have been here but something right. is not working and other than and this is this is a interesting challenge for a lot of people you know, uh, having that uh, enormous amount of freedom but a level of accountability uh, is really important for us so if you look at our culture we we talk about four things we talk about customer success is the number one thing and we absolutely relentlessly believe in that one partly because we are dealing with customers data and we are dealing with some of the largest enterprises in the world so clearly you cannot muck around on those uh, accountability is an absolute second second one and uh, you know i'm privileged to work with some of the best people so there's a level of respect and that is important for us and last part is we talk about you know trying to try to truly do an excellent job so those are the four pillars we try to build the company around and if we had, if you we were doing a short sprint and a quick flip probably would do a very different approach to how you would build a company i think we believe that this is a very secular stage uh, of what's happening in the world of using data as a strategic asset and uh, we needed to build something that truly lasted for the long term now not that you have a crystal ball but you certainly have um you know a uh, ability to build products that's you know are helping out you know different forms of technology that are on the you know bleeding or cutting edge so so do you think there's another you know, like next fundamental shift in technology coming somehow some way whether it's the you know storage cloud or maybe something we're not even thinking thinking about i can give you at least eight other startup ideas but I'm focused <laughs> on one right now and uh, i mean we live in exciting times we live in exciting times you know it's just for the first time you have a a market that is truly global you know there was a time 20 years ago if you started a company uh, just going to a new region was going to be a problem let alone go to you know global market so for the first time you have a market that is global the market reach that is very inexpensive because of you know internet and and various vehicles even even uh, uh, ecosystems that are built around and so that opens up phenomenal opportunities of new things that can that can uh, really uh, be relevant to a wide swath of market and, and one that you don't have to be close to I mean, if you look at some of the most successful companies you know israel does a phenomenal job of startups in in uh, in the us and you're seeing a lot more of uh, global startups that are doing phenomenally well uh, selling into the us and other markets so um, at least eight probably more i can come up with but there is a tremendous opportunity yeah no, it's definitely a good uh, good time to be an entrepreneur definitely i think there's always there's always a good time to be an entrepreneur i think i think a lot of it is like i said it's about just keeping your ears open mind open and humility to say i'm going to sit and listen to where is the money going what are people spending money on and how can i make it simpler faster cheaper 
so the better mousetrap, that model hasn't changed. That's a great point. Good time to be an entrepreneur at any time. Some of the greatest companies were created in that economic downturn. Actifio being one of them that started in 2009 when things were uh, incredibly challenging. And I think even like, you know, Dropbox and lots of other companies that are finally at a point of, you know, hitting, uh, you know, an IPO, those were companies that started in, in that era. Yeah, 2008 was a great time for people like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, not Lyft, but Uber and Airbnb. And, yep. and these are all sign of uh, people finding a real problem. Uh, same thing with Actifio. We saw a real problem of people, companies going slower and, you know, so now, I, I always believe, you know, there is no good time. There's no perfect time to be an entrepreneur. Every day is a great day to be an entrepreneur. Yep. Well said. Well, on that note, Ash, thanks so much for taking the time to share, you know, your background as far as all the things that you've accomplished throughout your career and the different companies. And of course, everything that you're up to at Actifio. And um, I assume Actifio is continuing to grow and expand and hire. Absolutely. Only one, one thing we can do is continue to expand and continue to grow and continue to hire. No, <laughs> no other model for, for a technology business. Exactly. So if you are interested in looking at opportunities at Actifio, you can certainly find their job openings on VentureFizz. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash Actifio to see all their listings. Well, Ash, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you share it with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. Plus, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It all definitely helps. Once again, thanks to our friends at Pluralsight for sponsoring this episode. Pluralsight is a technology learning platform and they are rapidly growing the team in Boston. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, then you need to apply to work at Pluralsight. Visit pluralsight.com backslash to learn more.